All right, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. Galatians would be on Wednesday if you want to hear from Galatians. We are continuing our study through the the book of 1 Samuel, and we've landed this Sunday on a perhaps a chapter that is not only well known within um, Christians, but also outside the actual story. So we're just going to make a few comments in the beginning, and then we'll get started. We're going to try to, as much as we can, go by um, verse by verse, and we'll see where the Lord takes us. So let's just open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we just ask that you'd open our eyes this morning, the speaker, the listeners here, Everybody that is under the sound of your word, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. So we're here in 1 Samuel 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. David, if you would ask, maybe there's people maybe perhaps in this room not familiar with this story, the details. But if you'd ask them who was David and Goliath, they would know that there was a... Um, an opponent that was unbeatable, and then there was an underdog that came in and won. And even in secular culture, sporting events, you'll hear announcers talk about David and Goliath scenarios. And and generally, we like the, the, the David story. We like the underdog story. We like the person who is going against insurmountable odds and, and winning it makes for good uh, publicity, makes for a good story to write in the newspaper. Um, you know, that's the type of thing that uh, sporting fans would look for is, is that the team that's not supposed to win, they go out and do something that's miraculous. So, but we want to look at it in, a, in a, that, no, no doubt that is the story here. But I want to look at actually this, this uh, chapter in this way. I think this is the key verse, and David really is the one that brings this forward. And this is over in this is his conversation with um, with Saul. But we'll get back to that now. I lost the, my uh, place there. But David is now going against, um, is now actually not part of this battle. Where we're at in this story is, you got to remember two Sundays ago, I believe it was, and uh, Michael uh, went, uh, tackled 16, because we took a break to look at the Psalms of David. But David was just anointed as king. And if you remember the story of of First Samuel, there is a judge who is um, judging Israel. He is not faithful in regards to his kids who are acting uh, wickedly. God does away with him, brings in a new person, right? A faithful priest he's going to raise up. And this is Samuel. Samuel's the faithful priest. He's the one uh, we believe is penning these words. But ultimately, Israel looks around. They have a problem that comes upon them. And Instead of crying out to the Lord, they say, you know what? We need to find a, a solution to our problems. That's a, I mean, that's a good thing to do. You want to find a solution to the problems, but where they went was not the right direction. 
they instead of going to the Lord and allowing the Lord to bring something into their life, they said, you know what, Lord? They went, we want this, and then they went to the Lord to ask him. We want this, and then they went to Samuel to say, you know what, give us a king. We need a king for this. We need a king to go out and fight our battles. We need a king to guard our borders. We need somebody to organize our group. This is what we want, Lord. Have you ever done that before? In our prayers, perhaps? Well, there's something I need, Lord. I really need this, and I... If, Please, if you can just allow this to happen in my life, and you keep praying that, praying, praying that. Now, of course, they, they acted in such a way that they rejected God. But, you know, allowing God, who is God and knows everything, if we trust him that he is that, why not allow him to act in our own life and just say, listen, here it is. What do you want to be done? Or maybe there's something I don't see yet. So a lot of times the Lord brings these situations um, into our lives. There was an enemy and Instead of turning to the Lord, which they should have done, they instead, they asked for something that was of lesser value. They asked for a king. Now, ultimately, God would bring in a king, right? I mean, even the first five books of our, uh, of our Bible, there's an allowance for a king. Even before they even come into the land, there's something written about when there's a king. So how God was going to bring that in, I'm not sure. You know, that's, not, that's beyond the scope of this message. But in any case, they jumped the gun, and they wanted the king now. And they wanted him to solve their problems, but they wanted God to allow this so they can solve their problems. So instead of allowing God to be on the throne, they wanted to put um, somebody else there. So in any case, um, Samuel was grieved about this. Samuel now is an older person. His sons had not fallen in, fallen, um, followed his ways, and that pretty much you know, was the catalyst for them to go out and get now a king, make this request. And now we have Saul as the as the king. Um, Saul started off well, but he didn't finish too well. He made some poor decisions. But God now has turned his his attention to somebody who is faithful. Somebody, if you would look at him, was not of kingly material. Um, Saul, it says of him that his stature was head and shoulders above um, his his people and. If you look at conservative estimates, you can think of ancient um, history of what a, a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, what way they would be around. It was probably conservative 5'5", five, 5'3". Five, five, so if Saul is head and shoulders, you're looking at somebody who's at least 6'6". Six, six. So if there's anybody that stands out, it would be him. Not only was he somebody the people would want, but he also God anointed him too as well. And he had everything. Um, he had the right ingredients around him. Right to continue and to flourish as the king, but ultimately he decided uh, to seek other means, and he did not follow the Lord fully. Right, he he wanted to just show works, he wanted to show results, he wanted to do things his way, but God uh, was desiring full obedience in every situation, every corner of the life. But he now is looking for somebody, and now in 16 he sends out Samuel to go anoint this kid now what his age is maybe 16 but in any case he's a small he's a small guy he's not very um imposing like Saul was perhaps um but this is a man that God can look into the heart and say listen this is the guy for me this is the guy I want leading my people and so here we are David now is on the scene the only thing that we read about David was is that he's a shepherd and that he was a good musician and Saul 
had some trouble, and they said, you know what, we have the cure. We're going to go find a, a good musician to play for you. And when he plays, the, uh, he, Saul was relieved. And so David's doing this. That's the only thing we know about him. And so this really is the chapter that introduces him. And really, this is the first and probably the only chapter where Saul and David are cordial. Because after this, right, Saul is chasing him and, and, and kind of looking at him like a was suspect because he is now in a, a position where he doesn't want anything to do with God in the sense of seeking his help and guidance. It does say that he does seek it, but he doesn't do it with his whole heart. So he is now suspect of everything that's happening around him. And David now is looks like he's going to be the one to uh, catapult himself to the throne. But, you know, it bears um, it bears something to say that, you know, David at a young age, you know, he doesn't actually reign until 40. And so there's a couple of things going on here. There's there's the situation with Saul, but there's also David being trained to reign. God was not going to let him go and reign when he's 16. There are king, kings that, you know, were reigning at a young age, but David didn't come to the throne until he's about 40. David wouldn't come to the throne until he was being chased by his enemies. David wouldn't come to the throne where he was at rock bottom with some decision that he made about fighting his own people. So there's a, there's still several uh, there's still several life stories that David has to go through before he actually now is king. But God saw into his heart that he would be the one that would follow after him fully. Now, of course, he wasn't a perfect person. Um, he did make some poor decisions, but um, he would be somebody that God would use because God doesn't need he doesn't need technology. He doesn't need objects. He saves people. Um, by those who would follow after him where he was going to be getting the glory and not them. And so what we're going to look at is, is, um, is just this chapter. I just kind of broke it down as simple as I can. But I, I don't know if we're going to get through all of this. But we're going to look at the setting, the champion, um, the future king, which would be David the scare king, which is we saw and really the people. And then, and then there's these two verses about his conversation with his family, his oldest brother, and then uh, David recounts his, his, his past experiences in dealings with God and where God was going to give him help and where he did give him help. And then Saul comes in and tries to help him in this situation and then ultimately the final battle. And really, it is, it's not just an underdog story. It's really the battle of man's will and man's strength against God. That's really what's going on. You know, man and his, and his um, arrogance thinks that they can exist without God. They tried to, we read this morning actually, is that they continue to do wickedness. And what that's telling them is, listen, you know, I don't get judged immediately and I can do away with him. And it speaks to their own heart that, listen, I can continue to do what I want. This world came from uh, an accident. This world came from some uh, spinning and gravity and gravitational forces in long time. You know, there's nobody out there that actually designed this place for a reason. And that is the moral center of this universe. And I can do whatever I want. The more I continue doing it and I don't see anything happen, you know what? We're here by chance anyways. And so it speaks to their own heart. But really it's God who um, will prevail. And we're here for his pleasure. And we're not here um, to serve ourselves. And ultimately um, Goliath pictures this, right? Man in his full strength against God. But he is no... Uh, match. So let's just look in the first. Um, let's look in the first verse here in, in First uh, Samuel 17. 
It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered in Soko, uh, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azka, and Ephraim Daim. And Saul and the men were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle formation against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and the valley in between. And so really, here's the setting. We have this battle. And this is what we're going to try to do is just go through this verse by verse as much as we can. And <clears throat> this is, of course, this is not um, the entire land of Israel. But where we're ha- uh, what we're looking at right here is uh, it says of Saul that um, in, the, in the chapters before that everywhere he turned, he inflicted punishment of those people around him. Israel was surrounded by still some of these remnants of Ammonites in, in different um, countries that weren't too friendly with Israel. But one of them is the Philistines. And here they're in their border. It's really part of their land, but they're still existing. And so here's where the battle is. Um, if you look at these, these, three, uh, these five cities come in later um, with, the, with the ark, actually in the earlier stories where the ark was taken and they're sending the ark around Gath, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, um, they're all mentioned. But here's where the battle is. It's right on the border. And one more, if <clears throat> this is a nice photo of what that actually looks like. I found this helpful because, you know, you can look at this story. I was just having a conversation with Sam. And we can look at this story and we say, well, it's a great story. But this actually happened. This was actual people fighting. And this, and this actually was a, a, an event in history. And so here's the view, at least the caption from the photo from Azka. And they're looking down into the Valley of Elah. And um, Soko is somewhere back here. So that would be the land of Judah. And they were camped somewhere around here. And they think, uh, scholars think that the Philistines were somewhere over here. And so there they are. They're looking at one another through that valley, uh, through the mountains. But you see how the valley is in between. And so if you know um, anything about uh, uh, battles, but the position of where the army is matters. You want to get the position that's defensible or you want to be on the high ground because if you're coming up from the bottom, there is a great disadvantage, right? Because you have to scale that mountain, especially if you have to climb it, but it's a great disadvantage. So there they are looking at each other and it says, uh, we'll get to it, but it says for at least 40 days, they were just staring at each other coming out and there was somebody taunting them and not moving. And so either they, they weren't confident enough to actually go army to army or something was going on. They decided the Philistines had a new tactic of, of psychological warfare, perhaps. But in any case, there they are. That's why they're not attacking. They're staring at each other because nobody wants to come through that valley to go back up that mountain to go meet the other army. Uh, actually, stay there for a second, Jason. So, and then there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the, javelin, and, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung beneath, uh, between his shoulders. And the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. And his, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted towards the, uh, the ranks of Israel. says, why do you come up and draw up the battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you... Not servants of Saul. Choose a man that uh, for yourselves that we make uh, that let him come down to me, and if he be able to fight with me and kill me, 
Then we will be your servants and we will prevail against. uh, But if I prevail against him and kill him, then we will be your servants and kill uh, and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the, the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight. And when Saul and Israel heard these words, they, uh, actually, we'll stop right there. And so here's the introduction of, of this of this person uh, named Goliath. Now, like I said, whether they uh, looked at the maybe they counted the cost of a full out onslaught or just because of the, fe- the two positions in the valley in between were defensible and it would be foolishness to go and rush and attack them. I don't know. But there they are looking at each other. But they send out this person. His name is Goliath. And he starts this um, he starts this challenge. Now, this man, it says here in, in, in my in, in my uh, chapter, the description of him. This is important. The Bible takes about you know, a few verses here to describe who this was. And this, I think, in the overall story is important to know what exactly is coming out from the camp of the Philistines. It says here that he's six cubits in a span. Now, there is, um, if you go to the next one, there's this uh, graphic that I found, of course, looking at the ordinary Jewish guy. But what exactly uh, Goliath was, um, how high was he? Now, in all of our translations, I think everybody here, I've looked, it's all six and a, and a, and a half cubits. But there are some, um, like I said, jo- Josephus mentions it, but he also is, uh, he omits a lot of verses out of this chapter. But some people say that he's four and a half cubits. Um, which would put him about six eight, which would still be a tall human being, but um, I think he was probably around that height, about nine seven. So he's a big guy. He's not even the biggest guy mentioned in the in the Bible. If you look at Og uh, King, actually we mentioned it this morning. Og King of Bashan, his bed it says that he slept on was eight cubits long. Now if you look at that, that's just a guess. Uh, actually nine cubits. They just guess that he's probably eight cubits tall. But he's actually a remnant still of that, that group of people that uh, were called the Rephaim. But he was a big man too, probably even taller than Goliath. But in any case, there was this person who was very self-imposing. And if you want to look at, I found this interesting too, to look at his, his, um, his gear. This would also support how actually tall he was. If you go to the next one, this is, of course, this is, this is just a graphic of a, a typical Bronze Age Warrior. This is um, perhaps somebody from Greece, but he carries the loadout of what Goliath would have carried. Now, what it says of his coat of mail, this object right here, it was 5,000 shekels. We don't use shekels as a weight anymore, but when it's converted to, to, pound, uh, to grams, it's about 0.0022. And if you convert that now to pounds, his coat of mail, just his coat, was 121 pounds. And so he's more, he has to be more than a person that's 6'8". I'm about 6'3", and I'm roughly about 190, 195. Now, if I put something that's, you know, 121 pounds on me, now, of course, it's, I'm not as tall as a 6'8 person. You know, I'm going to be pretty weighed down. I mean, I might, I might be able to move, but actually be affected on battle, you wouldn't be. Now, if you put it on a person who's 9-something, who's been training all of his life and has developed that muscular frame, that makes sense. Also, it says here that his, his shaft of his spear or his javelin was like a weaver's beam. I don't, know what a weaver, I don't know what a weaver's beam looks like. I can tell you. But I know that what it is is what they use for, for clothing, right, to make clothing. But the case is, is that his hand had to be so big that he could effectively use that. A weaver's beam. 
It also says that his spearhead was 600 shekels. Using the same measurement, it had to be 14 and a half pounds. Sandwiches tell me that the rifle that the modern soldier uses was about 14 pounds, right? But to actually use, is that correct? Okay. But actually use something to thrust it continually, if they're using a weapon just to throw and kill, I mean to, to, to raise up and shoot, that's different. But to use something like that and actually to be that big, he had to be a pretty big guy. And then um, he had a shield bearer. But in any case, the man was very imposing. And I know, you know, if you start looking at this, the Bible is always under scrutiny. Always. And people just, when they read this, they say, how can that even be? We don't even have fossil records of sometimes of looking at people that are that tall. We do have tall people living in this world. Actually, there are. They have different genetic diseases that allow them to get pretty tall. I think I was looking at Winslow or, or Wadsworth or somebody out there that was alive, and he was about 8 foot 11. But he had, he had some problems, you know, walking, and he would have been an imposing figure on the battlefield. I mean, if he was out there with leg braces and crutches walking around. But this guy was something different. He was something different. And he had to be an insur- The point is, is why I bring this all out, that he was an insurmountable opponent. There's nothing that they could have done in their own strength to actually go and defeat this person. And he offers this challenge to them. Let's do it one-on-one, mano y mano, right? You're best against me. I'm obviously the best on this side. And what could, God, you know, what could the armies of the Lord or those who claim to have the Lord at their helm, what could they do? And so um, go to the next one, Jason. Thanks. And so now we introduce what, what you know, in down to 24, you know, this is, this is what Saul was, this is what Saul was uh, elected for. This is what they wanted. Who else was going to go out there and meet this person except their king, right? We want somebody to go out there and fight for us. But where is he? He's nowhere to be found, right? He's with everybody else frightened because this guy is a beast. He's like a massive giant coming out. Not only that, he has somebody carrying a shield. So, I mean, I can't imagine how big that was. And so the time that you need your answer, right, the the answer that you wanted, it falls. And honestly, that's what happens when we try to go out on our own strength or we kind of we 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 allow we put God off to the side. Right. And we want to make the decisions and we want the answers that we want when it comes to the test. It's going to fail. And so Saul is one who is not out there um, fighting with them, but he is uh, cowering into the into the uh, like everybody else. Right. Just frightened. It says here. um, It says here in verse 17, it says, Jesse, this is uh, David. Uh, David's three brothers were out there. They were called out to be fighting with Saul. But David was now back. He probably wasn't, um, maybe not even old enough at this time to, to be enlisted. He obviously wasn't imposing enough to say, Saul would say, man, he, he's big enough. He would look good in my army. But in any case, he was not. Um, he was actually tending to his father's sheep. And it says here in 17 that Jesse said to, said to David, take your brothers and an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers and also take the ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Um, there was no satellite phones as there are today, no email. Uh, how's the battle faring? 
uh, you need to send an actual person to go do it. And so the only person that maybe Jesse had in the house, maybe there were other brothers, but he decides to send his youngest son. Um, I'm not sure why, but um, obviously God allowed this to happen because God was about to use David and catapult him to the forefront of Israel's mind through this event. But in any case, David is sent. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you think about the future king, you know, what, how come he's not in the best institutions? How come he's not out there training for battle at this time? He's out there obeying his father, watching sheep. And, you know, that's exactly, I think, where we need to be sometimes. You know, we have this, we have the desire to serve the Lord. And, and um, we want to see great things that, to happen in our life. And maybe we want to see God send us somewhere, perhaps. But we overlook the simple things. What has God actually uh, laid out before us to be doing and being occupied now? David was just doing what he knew was in front of him tending to the father's business, his family business, and obedient to his father. And it was at that time that God called him out to go do something. Instead of putting, you know, whatever analogy you want to put, put the cart before the horse, he waited for God to act rather than him wanting to go act. And and ambition and um, zeal is great. I think we had that conversation last time I speak. Ambition and zeal are great, but it needs to be tempered, and it needs to be directed, right, towards something that would be uh, beneficial but David is the future king and what is he doing he's not out there training he's not in king school or anything like that he's watching sheep but that's exactly where God wants him so David is sent now Saul and all the men he, he comes into the situation and he sees what's going on um, it says in 21 it says that Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle array army against army and David left the, thing, left the things in charge of the keeper and the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. And as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks. And the Philistine spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. And so David is now introduced to this person. Now, this is this is significant. The fact that David wasn't, you know, he was sent there to go uh, see how everything is going, see how the battle's uh, faring. But the fact that somebody comes out and David wasn't looking for it is significant because it plays into David's thinking as he later is to meet this challenge, what that means to him. And 24 it says, And the men of Israel saw this, they fled, and they were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has defied the, uh, come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who were with him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. And so you really see, like I said, um, where Saul's at at this point, he doesn't want to even go out and fight it. He makes an offer, a lucrative offer to say, maybe I can get somebody to go out there and fight them. He even saw himself that this was going to be a losing battle. If he went out there in his own strength, you can see where his heart is. He didn't think that this was be something that he can uh, um, he can accomplish in his own strength. And if he was somebody who was relying on God, he said, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's a grasshopper or if it's a man who's nine foot eight. It doesn't matter. God will still provide me the victory. But he brings out all these um, these deals to have riches and to have their father's house, you know, not paying any taxes uh, just to try to get somebody to come out and do this. To fight this man. You see how desperate he was. 
And in verse, just to mention a, a few verses about 28, it says, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard this, and he spoke to the men. And Eliab, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come? And to whom have you left the things, uh, the few sheep in the wilderness? I know the presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done? Was it not but a word? And he turned away toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and the, and the people answered him in the same thing as before. If you would think anywhere that you would receive encouragement to actually go on and, 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 and do something for the Lord, it would be from your own family, especially in your own trust circle. But, you know, David, this was just the beginning of David's, uh, the M.O. of David's life. He wouldn't be getting encouragement from his own family. He wouldn't be receiving it from his closest friends. They would be rising up against him at certain times. Even his own son, when he was a king, um, was he? You know, he wanted to do away with them. But here's his own brother, not even supporting him. I mean, he's just like, Dave, what are you here? What are you? What are you doing out here? You know, you, I mean, he didn't even realize that he came to do his his own father's uh, request, but. You know, th- this comes into play, and this is what Jamel brought out in, in um, some of the Psalms. David would write about some of these things. Look at, um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses here in Psalm, um, Psalm 27. Listen to these words. The Lord is my, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I feel? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. From whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me and eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, um, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though I war arise against me, I will be confident. One thing I've asked from the Lord, and that will I seek. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the Lord in beauty and inquire um, in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me against the cover of his tent, and he will lift me up from a rock. Look in verse 7, Hear, Lord, when I cry, be gracious to me and answer me. For you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, out your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me, though your servant, uh, turn not your servant away in anger. For you have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me, O God, of my salvation. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but Lord, but the Lord will take me in. And so when you see these kind of words, you, 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 you start to connect some of David's life Really, he went through these situations to pen these words. And God, through the Holy Spirit, was using these, um, these events. And when David would write down these psalms, he would look at it and say, listen, that actually happened to me. This actually happened to me. And you would think, you know, in the time of trouble, why would David be saying, one thing I've asked from the Lord, and this is what I seek, and I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and I gaze the Lord, the beauty of the Lord, and inquire in his temple. You know, what kind of result you would think in your own wisdom would that get you at all? If you have a problem, why would you ever seek the Lord uh, or go dwell in his temple? Where, where, where's the, the, the logic in that? Well, David found rest and in in, in confidence in the Lord rather than in his own abilities. And that while it wouldn't make sense to the human mind to say, well, here's a problem, especially when it comes to Gath, uh, this Goliath of Gath, and here's a great battle. Why would I go and do that? In this situation, go dwell in his house to seek the well, because the Lord was going to take care of it. And it would only be a man who actually would experience these things in his life, would actually write about this and actually write about this, um, these true events that happened to him. 
So not even his own family would support him. And then uh, just a few more thoughts um, here. Um, Saul hears about these words that David is speaking. Obviously, this wasn't something that um, people were sharing uh, um, amongst themselves. There weren't anybody else having this kind of confidence. It was only David. So Saul hears about it, and, and he, he summons David to himself. And he says, you know, your servant will go fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight against him for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. This guy's been training for battle for all of his life. He isn't, he isn't somebody who just learned how to fight. He's been doing it since you were even um, alive. But David said to Saul, but your servant, um, listen to this, but your servant, uh, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. But when their lion came or a bear, I took the lamb from the flock and I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it from his mouth. And he rose up again. And if he rose up against me, I struck him by the beard. I took him by the beard and struck him and killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies on the living God. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said, go and the Lord be with you. This is, a key, this is a key part of this, this whole process of David going and facing this insurmountable challenge. He looked at a situation that happened before in his life that was a smaller situation, perhaps. It wasn't the great thing where I can trust the Lord. Yes, Lord, help me in this situation. But it was something smaller. Now, of course, facing a lion and bear is pretty scary to begin with. But when, it, when you come to Goliath of Gath, right, there was a smaller situation. But he trusted the Lord in that other situation, and he said, you know what? It's not going to make any difference, no matter how big the, the, the situation or the problem is or how deep it is or how insurmountable, God will still deliver me. He did it in the small way, but now he's going to do it in the big way. And we often get it the opposite way around. We, when we come to a, a situation and, and it's insurmountable, God lets, allows us to get into this, perhaps this pit or this hole, and there's, uh, whether it's sickness Whatever it is, and we say, Lord, help us, help us, and he delivers us out of it, or he, he teaches us some kind of lesson. But then when it's something small, we don't trust the Lord in that. We have it the opposite way around. We trust the Lord in the big things, but we don't follow through in the small things. David started from the small things and said, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's something that's big. The Lord delivered me from something small. He's going to do the same from something big. So being, being faithful in the small things is also key to actually being faithful in the big things as well. And David really is, is amplifying this. And the fact that it says that the, the lions and the bears came out to him, it wasn't that David was looking for trouble. It's that this is a situation that came out to him that he had no control of. And he said, you know what? I need the Lord's help in this situation. The Lord delivered him. The same thing with this Philistine. He wasn't looking to go battle this person, but it was somebody that came out to fight him or actually to defy his God. And then the actual battle, we'll just read, um, and really this is the key uh, to this whole thing. It says in verse 41, it says, and then when um, Saul gave him some of his armor, of course, um, the greatest technology and have that bronze, late bronze era, early on, uh, Iron Age armor wasn't going to help David. David went out, he just went out with what he knew because he knew the Lord was going to be the one to deliver him. In verse 41, it says, and the Philistine moved forward. And came near to David and the shield bearer. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David, he disdained him. He said, from a youth, 
because he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And David and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds, to the air and to the beasts of the field. And the Philistine and the David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. Uh, this day the Lord will deliver me to your hand, and I will strike you down and cut your head off, and I will give the, your dead body to the host of the Philistines this day, and to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, uh, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into uh, our hand. And the battle proceeds, and David ultimately strikes him down. And really, that's the key uh, to this, is that there's, there's man in his pomp and his strength versus God. But God doesn't need the greatest or latest technology. He can use a sling. He can use a, a stones. He can use whatever. Sometimes he rains stuff from, from heaven to accomplish a victory. Sometimes he does do something miraculous like that. But the, the point is for us is while we look at this story, that the Lord does not save through um, sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Before the battle even starts, to recognize to, uh, for the believer is that the battle belongs to the Lord. Is that, yes, I need to go out there and fight. I need to be out there participating, but I don't need to think about what my greatest weaponry is. I need to have the right, correct rep- weapons, of course, but I need to have the Lord at my back. I need to know and then realize that the Lord is the one fighting the battle for me. And David knew that. He said, it didn't matter if it was a lion or a bear. God delivered me out of his hands. And it won't matter when it comes to this Philistine. And so while it is a great story of, a, of an underdog, but really this was an actual event that happened. And we have a couple of things that happens here is that the relationship between Saul and David declines from this situation. It also catapults David and to the forefront of who he was an unknown person at this time. Nobody knew who he was, but now Israel knows who he was and God catapults him to the front. And you start to think, yeah, this is, this is the way God's going to make him king. Well, it's not yet. Right? David still has to go through a lot of hardship. David still has to run for his life. He needs to flee to different countries and do all these other things. You think, man, how can God take a person like that and make him king? Well, God just wants them at the lowest point, right? He wants obedience. He wants reliance on him. And he's able to do great things. And it started right here in this, in this situation. David would say, it's the Lord that saves, not through man's strength, man's technology, sword or spear, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So he was a, this was a man, this was the amplification of a man after God's own heart that would be trusting him in every situation, not somebody who would um, obey in just a few things, but somebody that would follow after the Lord totally and fully. And so David really amplifies that in this story. So let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the story of David and Goliath. And, Lord, we do face many um, giants and insurmountable problems in our life. And um, we thank you for them because it, it drives us to call out to you and to, uh, and to fall back upon you and to be as David, to find shelter in, your, in the wings of your shadow. And, and Lord, we, just, we see all this, but then... When those times are not upon us, Lord, we, we tend to drift, Lord. We just pray that we would be faithful in all things and that we would uh, just look and be thankful for each um, situation in our life and that we would 
just rely on you and, and be faithful to you in all things. And we just thank you for the story that teaches us this. And we just pray that your, uh, your blessing and your uh, safety as we go out uh, from this place, Lord. And Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.